The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, I want to start out, as I always do, reminding you that if you go to wealthformula.com, there is an entire wealth of information that is untapped if you haven't been there. There are all sorts of downloads with information, including my book, which is Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, which is an Amazon number one international bestseller. It's still there and you can pay me for it or you can go to wealthformula.com and simply download it in PDF format. You can also get that book simply by picking up your cell phone and texting 44222 and typing in Wealth Formula, one word. And if you do that, you will get the book in your email. So that's easy too. If you're one of these people who listens to this show on the road who never gets a chance to go back and do some of the things that we suggest on the show. On WealthFormula.com, obviously, there is also the Weekly Wealth Widget, which is a great way to get small morsels of financial information over time. I highly recommend that. The key here, folks, is that you sign up for any of these things. You also end up getting on my email list, which in and of itself has a tremendous value of information. If you only listen to the podcast, you're only getting probably half the information that I actually put out. So if you like what I'm doing, make sure you get on the email list. Now let's get on to the topic today, which is a little bit about businesses. So, you know, I have a lot of people in investor club. When I talk to them, they aren't necessarily, you know, flipping homes themselves, but they're investing in flippers. So, you know, what they're doing is they're lending money to people who are flipping homes. And many times you find that these notes actually pay pretty well. You know, they might be 12, 15% or more on a regular basis. And that's why these investors love the idea of these kinds of returns. And so I often get the question from people who are investing in these kinds of notes, well, why would they invest in anything with less return? Well, I think, you know, that's a fair question, but there's a very good answer. And I think, you know, as you continue to get more and more sophisticated in the world of investing, you'll start to understand that. But the short answer is that when you lend to people flipping homes, you're not investing in real estate. That is just not the case. You're not investing in an asset. You are investing in a business because flippers run a business. And what they do is they find, you know, homes that are undervalued, maybe need some fixing up. They buy them with maybe your money if you're issuing notes and then they turn it around after hopefully less than six months and then they sell it for more. That is not real estate investing, folks. That is a business because it has inventory and it can dry up. The goal of investing is not to flip, right? Investing is uh, implies some kind of long-term hold, which is inherently less risky than flipping. 
Now, I'm not trying to knock on flippers at all. Listen, the ones who are good at it are really good at it. I don't invest with flippers because my biggest concern is that when the music stops and 2008 happens again, you get, you know, I don't care what the note says, you're not getting your money back. But I'm not against investing in businesses at all. I mean, investing in business, though, you have to understand it is inherently riskier than investing in an asset class such as real estate. You know, if you're actually investing in real estate, that is not as risky. The risk profile is much less. And as a guy who starts businesses, I know this to be the case instinctively. Now, listen, I've had businesses that I've started and I have businesses that have thrown off seven figures of profits in one year and then the next year we're in the red. You know, the multiple variables involved with businesses such as, you know, what is the market doing? What's the competition doing? How good is your management team? All these questions make it much more volatile than investing simply in an apartment building where people have to live or, you know, single family homes or whatever. It's also my experience as a guy who starts businesses that there are often hidden variables within a business that dictate their success. That, you know, people from the outside who might, you know, be interested in buying the business can't necessarily identify that easily. With some of my businesses, for example, this relates to my own instincts as a marketer and directing our marketing initiatives. So if I sell a business of mine that relies heavily on my special skill set, the person or company or whatever it is that's buying my business has to be able to make up for that special skill set or they may not see the same results that that business is seen when it's actually owned by me. And this is the case with, frankly, with most businesses that are not of substantial size. And when I'm talking about substantial, I'm talking about maybe businesses that are over $50 million in revenue. And so suffice it to say that that particular knowledge has kept me from purchasing business as an investment. My conclusion is, and has been at least, that I'm better off for now at least starting businesses from scratch. Now, as I sort of alluded to, the exception to that might be buying larger businesses. So let's take, for example, a business with $50 million revenue, several hundred employees. They've got management in place. And the owner is basically just passive, you know. That as an asset to buy might be appealing. The problem is that a business like this might have, you know, if it's a $50 million revenue business, let's assume a 20% profit margin, that's a $10 million profit. And that business might cost, you know, $40, $50 million to purchase. Now, obviously, you can leverage that, and then the equity injection might be, you know, more like uh, $15 or $20 million. But right now, I'm, I'll be admit, I don't have the kind of money yet to buy something like that. I mean, it might be interesting as something to do as part of Investor Club with our syndicators and investors. But right now, that's not really on my radar. Now, if you're a savvy investor, you probably noticed that I used, when, when I was talking about this theoretical business, this multiple right? And that's what we call it. When you sell a business of that size, you sometimes, depending on the particular market that you're in, the industry, whatever, there's a certain multiple, or that also depends on the size of the business, of profits that you can sell a business for. So for example, in the example I used above, I said the profits were $10 million 
for that business. And I used a multiple of four or five, so 40 or $50 million. That's the multiple I'm using. And that's a pretty typical multiple for an operating business. Now, certainly there are some businesses in certain sectors that sell for higher multiples, like healthcare, et cetera, can be 10 plus. But for the most part, you know, having something that's selling for about a five multiple is pretty common for businesses that aren't huge. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's a lot of money. I mean, $50 million for a $10 million profit. Like I said, that for businesses, that would be not out of the ordinary. But let's compare that just for reference. Is that high or low compared to real estate? Well, D-class apartment buildings, you know, when I say D-class, of course, it's the no money, no credit crowd. You might, you know, have some uh, gangs living there, et cetera, whatever. In a lot of the bigger markets, they may still be trading around 10 times profits, which we refer to as a cap rate of 10. So, you know, that building that we're talking about, a theoretical building, that ends up being a really big apartment building, but it's D-class, but it has a net operating income, in other words, profit of $10 million per year might actually be worth $100 million or more compared to that $50 million we just talked about for the business that threw off $10 million. And that business being a, you know, a solid business that you don't have to worry about getting shot when you walk into. In other words, if you know what you're doing, buying businesses can potentially be very profitable. The fact that they are more complex to run, etc., is factored in, and that's why you get a higher return on investment, typically buying a business, than you would real estate. But for all the reasons I've discussed earlier, it's not for the faint of hearted. Like I said, I've not done myself, but cert- almost certainly will do in the future. And my guest today, Victor Minash, actually has a lot of experience in this area, and so I thought we'd have him on the show to shed some light on the idea of buying businesses. So when we come back, Victor Minash. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector conservative investing with double-digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com, accesswealthaviation.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Victor Minash. He is the author of The Great Canadian Takeover and Magnetic Capital. He's actually a real estate investor in Canada, but he also has a significant past in the world of business, including 25 years in the high-tech industry. He describes himself as a business builder at heart, which I completely understand and feel in solidarity with him on this. So welcome to the show, Mr. Victor Minash. Oh, great to be here. So Victor, tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up where you are. Well, I started out my career early on as a microprocessor designer. That was my passion and That's what I did for the bulk of my career in technology. And as I rose to the ranks of various technology companies, both private and public companies, took on a number of executive roles. 
and got into the world of business development. We ended up acquiring companies, ended up acquiring businesses to specifically create product line extensions. And that was really the genesis of the idea of how to create revenue growth inorganically. You know, there's traditional organic growth where you continue to acquire customers and you design and develop products and keep building the revenue stream the old-fashioned way. And then inorganic growth is based on acquiring businesses and using that to essentially aggregate more and more on the top line revenue. And if you can do that in a way that is beneficial to the bottom line or more importantly is a way for you to spend money without it appearing as an expense on your income statement, which is a very powerful tool. It creates a way for you to grow your business that most people don't think about. Now, in the world of high finance, in the world of hedge funds and private equity firms, this is all second nature. But if you don't come from that world, what I'm talking about is a little bit different and not something that your average business person, certainly not your average small business person, typically avails themselves of. So let's talk about, you know, in the context of my listeners, we don't tend to be Wall Street folks, but we do a number of us are, you know, small business people. Maybe we have medical practices or law practices or engineers, et cetera. So in the context of that, give me an example of, let's talk about a medical practice, for example, or a dental practice. And how would you look at that and say, you know, evaluate it in terms of, okay, well, how do we grow this thing? How do we make it more valuable so it becomes something to sell? Absolutely. In fact, law firms, accounting firms are great examples. And if you think about the major law firms, major accounting firms, they've all been put together that way, where they've simply aggregated more and more businesses together that really have very little interaction with each other. They're simply rolling up businesses to create a higher valuation. Now, if, let's start with a definition of what the different tiers are for valuation. So at the very bottom of the food chain, you've got small companies that have, you know, one to three million dollars in revenue, and they typically get valued at somewhere between one to three times earnings. If you go to the top of the food chain and think about public companies, you see examples of public companies that are valued at anywhere from 10 to 30 times earnings. So why is that? What it has to do with is the world seems to reward scale. If you are bigger and you have more momentum, you have more sustainability, that has more value. And so you can create value simply by taking two companies that are smaller, putting them together, and you don't even have to improve their profitability. Simply by, by virtue of the fact that they're bigger, you're going to get a higher valuation because you're at a higher valuation multiple simply on the basis of scale. And in the world of hedge funds, they do this all the time. Private equity firms do this all the time. They call them roll-ups. And if you think about big law firms like Norton Rose, Deloitte, PricewaterhouseCoopers, these are all companies that have just been rolled up over time. Yeah. So in terms of what if I've got a dental practice, I've been cruising along and obviously I'm not necessarily looking to acquire a practice, but what if I'm on the other side, I'm trying to sell my practice? How do I increase the value of that in your view? What's the best way to grow that practice and create something that's a better target? Certainly if you're on the sell side and you're looking to sell a property for every penny that it's worth, what you want to do is you want to maximize the earnings. If you have historically loaded up your practice with expenses that are deductible by the business. Let's say, for example, you're a dentist, you have eight or 10 chairs in, in your office. So you have a decent sized practice and maybe you've got some expenses that 
are you know tied to you personally, maybe a car, maybe some other expenses that for tax purposes make an awful lot of sense for you to deduct, well, you should back those out of your financials because those are not legitimately tied to the dental practice. Once you step out of that, th those expenses are going to disappear. So you'd certainly want to reduce expense and maximize the profitability of the practice because you're going to get rewarded on multiples of earnings. So when you say that, Victor, just for clarity, because I know yes. exactly what you're talking about, because I have several businesses and certainly some of them, that's exactly what I do, right? I'm writing off a number of things that are perfectly legal for me to do, but we call those, you know, sellers discretionary expenditures, right? And Correct. are you saying, is it okay just to back them out, just keep track of them and put them off to the side as discretionary expenditures or just don't do it or... Ideally, I guess you just don't do it because then there's no questions, right? Well, if you see a sale coming in the next two, three years, let's say you're you're planning to retire, the benefit that you're going to get, the tax benefit that you're going to get from deducting your car and a, you know maybe a, a dental convention and a few other things like that are going to be small in comparison to what you're going to get as a multiple on sale. So it may be more beneficial for you to actually not even claim those expenses in the last two, three years. If you still feel compelled to claim them, then keep track of them, put them in a separate bucket, say that those are, you know, seller discretionary expenditures that really are not core to the business. And in the post sale of the business, those expenses would not exist. And so you can legitimately argue that they're not tied to the core of the business and they could be separated out. It's a weaker argument, but it's certainly one that's made every day in the sale of businesses. That's the first thing I would do if you want to maximize the value of the business. You know, oftentimes, I see doctors and dentists later in their career, in fact, making the decision to grow their practice. You know, you would think as you're entering your sunset years in your career that you should maybe take your foot off the gas and stop growing. You might even make the argument that you may want to do the, consider doing the opposite. And here's why. It doesn't mean you have to spend more hours in the office drilling teeth. But maybe what you do is you put your focus and attention on building something that operates without you being in the office. And that could be acquiring additional businesses and using those businesses to allow you to step out. Now, you've created something that is a true business. My definition of a business is one where if you're on the beach and it continues to run, it's a real business. But if you're out of the office and it stops, that's not a real business. That's called self-employed, in my opinion. And to have something that's a value that's truly saleable it's got to be a business with that characteristic where you can step out and it still runs. And scale helps that. So if you, again, use the dentist example, if you can acquire four or five practices, well, guess what? Number one, you're acquiring enough dentists that are potential acquirers of the business down the road. So you are acquiring associates that are potentially in a position down the road to acquire it from you. And when you reach a certain size, you also start to become attractive to companies that buy practices, that buy medical clinics. They typically are willing to engineer and pay higher multiples. And so, uh, you know, you can create an awful lot of value by doing it that way. Aggregation of businesses is a very, very effective way to create residual income. Look, most of the wealth in the world has been created through some combination of residual income and capital gains. It's never been through employment income or earned income approach. And if you're self-employed, if you are a dentist, a doctor, whatever, that's all an earned income approach. Yeah. So you want to transition to residual income and capital gains as the way to build your wealth. Right. You know, obviously, in terms of valuation, that's a fairly complex topic, obviously. 
And I've talked about it on the show a little bit. In fact, very recently, you know, why is it now you're a real estate investor now and you look at properties and when we talk about businesses and we thought about relatively small businesses, say a million to three million, getting a valuation of, you know, 10 times profits is, would actually be pretty darn good on something that small. But that's pretty routine for a real estate asset that's throwing off a certain amount of money. Absolutely. And so I've talked about this before, but I'd love to get your perspective and your way of explaining why that is. It really has to do with how sustainable that income stream is. You know, for example, if you look at an apartment building that is fully leased up, it's got 10 years of history, it's well-maintained, it's reasonable to expect that that building is going to continue to generate that same level of earnings, assuming it continues to be well-managed, 10, 15, 20, 30 years into the future. There's no reason for that to decline. It's not a perishable product. It doesn't have a shelf life like tomatoes where it's going to be obsolete in two years. So the more sustainable that income stream is, the higher multiple you're going to get, generally speaking. Now, the second thing towards multiples is growth. So if you have a history of growing, let's say you're growing at 50% a year and you have a history of that growth, you would be willing to pay a premium based on today's numbers because it's reasonable to expect that that growth is going to continue next year. That's why if you look at many technology companies like Apple and Google and and so on that have gone through tremendous growth and they have very high earnings multiples, 25, 30 times earnings, well, you're going to say, wait a minute, I'm going to wait 30 years to get my money back? That doesn't make any sense. Well, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. The only thing that makes sense is if the growth continues, what looks like 30 times earnings today might be 15 times earnings next year. Right, right. Which starts to look a lot more reasonable. As a corollary to that, what becomes interesting as an investor is the fact that with small businesses, if they're typically selling at, say, a two, three, or four times earnings multiple, that's quite a bit more return on investment than somebody might get by buying multifamily real estate, especially right now. So I bring this up because, you know, everybody's looking for yield right now. And one of the ways to do that potentially is by acquiring a business. So if you're acquiring a small business, you might be looking at an expectation of 30% return on investment instead of eight to 10, right? So one of the questions that I had, and for our audience that might be interesting is, you know, what kinds of business, say you're a high paid W-2 wage earner right now, and you're thinking, well, gosh, you know, I'd love to, you know, buy a business. What kinds of businesses are good kinds of businesses to buy and what kind are bad? It really depends on what space you're in and what value you believe you can offer. At the end of the day, business is all about solving problems. So, you know, the real magic, at least in my opinion, is when you can take one plus one equals three. And I'll use a trivial example, but it's one that is easy to understand. So if you have an idea, and and a lot of people that are maybe employees today, they see a problem in the marketplace and they say, you know what, I'm going to go off and I'm going to do a startup company to fulfill that need in the marketplace. And there's hundreds of thousands of examples of that all over the country. And the sad reality is the vast majority of them fail. You know, your chances of success doing a startup company are about 10%. And if you do make it, it's going to take you on average, these are just, you know, industry statistics, it's going to take you on average seven years to achieve profitability. Those are not great odds. But if you have an idea that's going to transform an industry, 
you may be better off to go acquire a business that has revenue and customers in that same space and to use the revenue stream from that existing business to fund your startup. That's a much lower risk way to do it. So the example I'll give is let's imagine for a moment that you were the inventor of the zipper and you're going to go to Silicon Valley and you know go to Menlo Park and go up Sand Hill Road and talk to all the venture capital firms and try and raise some money. Well, you could do that. Or you could go out and you could buy a company that manufactures buttons. And buttons are a commodity, but they have revenue, they have customers. And guess what? You can put zippers through that same sales channel that you're selling buttons in. And you can use the profit margin on the buttons to fund the zipper product line extension. You can now come up with different product variants. You can come up with the big fat metal zippers for luggage and the skinny nylon zippers for women's dresses and so on. And you can do all these different product variants all funded from the button business. And now your chances of success go from, you know, 10% to more like 90%. And your time to profitability goes from seven years to two. It's a much smarter way to build a startup. And to me, that's what I get really energized about. I get really passionate about is finding those magic situations because they're out there. And most of your listeners, I'm sure, are not thinking that way. They're not thinking, well, what if I could buy this other business that has the same customers and use the revenue stream from that to fund what it is that I want to go do that's going to really transform the industry? That's cool. That's the magic. Yeah, I agree with that. But here's one of the challenges, in my view, is I'm a startup guy. So I've started you know, multiple businesses now, and fortunately, it didn't take me seven years to get profitable. And I'm kind of spoiled because if it goes past seven months, I start to get agitated. But here's the problem that I have. I can start a business, and part of what makes it easy for me to do that is I get a very strong sense in my mind that there's an opportunity here, and I deploy capital, and I make it happen quickly, and it works for me. But the problem that I've had, and because I have thought about buying businesses – and I'm sure this is something that others listeners might have, is I find it very difficult to trust. I mean, certainly at the scale that we're talking about. I mean, I'm not looking at spending $50 million for a business or $100 million for a business. But if I want to buy a business for 3 or $4 million, it's sometimes difficult to look at that business and say, how much of this business is really about who the ownership is right now and how much is it about being something that's transferable to me and makes it easy for me to sort of just, you know, look at it as a residual income and growth play? On a smaller scale, how do you avoid the mom and pop effect? That's a very good question. And my perspective when I approach this is often to think about going bigger. Small businesses, if you're looking to do this with small businesses, it's actually more difficult. Number one, it's more difficult to raise the money. It has all of the issues that you just talked about. There are great sources of businesses and product lines to buy that they're not out there. You're not going to find them on LoopNet. You're not going to find them in you know the business broker databases. One of the real benefits of acquiring a larger business is that when you think about growth and you think about the transitions the companies go through, every time you triple in size from three employees to 10, from 10 to 30, from 30 to 90 or 100, every time you grow by a factor of three, you almost need to reinvent the company from the inside out. You need new systems, you need new processes, you need new capability and talent at senior levels in the organization. There's always this reinvention 
that occurs. And that's one of the reasons why so many startups fail is because they fail to make those transitions. Even if they get out of the starting blocks and they manage to get traction in the marketplace, many of them die failing to make some of those necessary transitions because people get entrenched in the roles and they're not willing to transform themselves out of a role because that's what the company needs. And so many good companies die for that simple reason. When you acquire a larger business, you skip a lot of those steps. And that's one of the reasons why your chances of success go up so dramatically. The second thing is there is a wonderful landscape of entrepreneurship all over the you know the country, but there's also a healthy amount of intrapreneurship. And what that means is major companies, Fortune 500 companies, making investments, making small bets on different ideas that some of them are successful, some of them are not. These are startups within big companies. And oftentimes those become small divisions, they become small revenue streams, and they don't flourish into becoming a major revenue stream for the company. So they have two choices at that point. They either continue to feed it, and it's a distraction, they shut it down, as they often do, or they sell it off. And it's that third one that is the opportunity. You will often find businesses that are withering on the vine in Fortune 500 companies that are not interesting to them, but would be very interesting to you. My history, I acquired two divisions out of IBM. I acquired two product lines out of IBM. A $50 million business inside IBM is a rounding error. It's, an, it's a distraction. But to me, a $50 million business was very interesting. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's much easier to go raise two, $300 million to buy a business like that than it is to raise $5 million for an idea. Sure. Let's talk about this again. And I guess I'm trying to create some level of, you know, takeaway for some of our listeners who typically are probably not playing in the space where they're necessarily going to be able to raise $200 million. In terms of a business, I guess uh, if you're looking to acquire, what is big enough? And as a corollary to that, where do you find these businesses? I mean, the most of us who are you know, looking to buy businesses. I mean, you've got a few options. As you mentioned, you can go to a business broker. You could look on LoopNet. You could buy a franchise, I guess. I mean, that's another opportunity. So what's big enough and where do you find them? It really comes down to what is going to be complementary to what it is that you want to do. You know, so for example, let's imagine for a moment that you want to do something that's going to be a value add in transportation of goods. Well, maybe you go out and buy a handful of UPS store franchises. And now what you're doing is synergistic with the UPS store, as long as you fall within the rules and regulations of the franchise agreement. Franchises are a little bit more difficult because, you know, you really do need to stick to their formula. If you're looking for other businesses, again, where you have an idea that, you know, is really going to add a lot of value. Here's a very simple example. Let's imagine for a moment, and this is one that I'm actually working on right now. There is a liquid natural gas facility in Louisiana that has a need to get construction workers on their site, and they don't have parking. They need parking for like a 1,000 people. So we've engaged with a bus company to provide transportation about 40 minutes into this liquid natural gas plant. And we have acquired a piece of land to essentially provide parking. So there's really two businesses there. There's a transportation business, and there's a parking business. Right, right. Right? Mm -hmm. And they're complementary. So, Yeah, that um, makes sense. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's part of a food chain. So let's talk about it. Let me give you an example of mine and see if you have any thoughts on this. So I have um, one of my businesses, a cosmetic surgery business. 
Okay, and it's in the Chicago area, and I started it about eight years ago. And at that point, I was the owner-operator. And probably about oh, three, four years ago, I phased myself out. Now I have three or four plastic surgeons running the show there. As you defined it, I'm the business owner. I don't really do anything. I have good management. But what happened was, about two years ago, it was going so well that I said, well, gosh, well, why don't I try to replicate this? In other markets. I mean, in Chicago, it's the second biggest market in the country. If I can dominate this market, why can't I go do this everywhere else? So I started to, was self-capitalized, and I knew it was risky to do this, to, to create these other offices. And so I felt like the investment was probably 2 or $3 million. But okay. the upside was unilateral. I mean, it was because of everything you said, you know, multiple offices, valuations, particularly in the medical space. I felt like the upside was, you know, 40 or $50 million where compared to a 2 to $3 million downside. Anyway, right. it was a calculated bet and I lost. <laughs> so okay. I think what happened is, you know, I was capitalizing myself. I didn't go out and get any capital because generally with things that risky, I tend to be averse with other people's money. But what ended up happening was the hole was getting too deep and I just pulled the plug. Right. So if I look back on that, I think, well, one of the issues is undercapitalization. Tell me what else I, and I want you to be completely brutally honest because again, I'm a startup guy, right? Yep. Tell me what I should have done. Well, the key with any business and if I look at businesses that have had problems and have failed, most of the time I trace it back to one of two problems. Number one, there was something that you couldn't foresee. It was an act of God that completely blindsided you. Or number two, you had the wrong people. Right. And I would say 90 plus percent of the time it's you had the wrong people. And I say that very humbly from firsthand experience. Yeah, Most of the screw-ups have been because I had some of the wrong people in the wrong roles. I don't know if that was your situation, yeah. but I, I guess I think you're right was. about that. And, and I'll tell you one of the things, because we've reflected on this, because the Chicago office is still doing extremely well, even though we pulled a plug on all the other offices. One of the things we try to do is we try to take people who are doing really, really you know, good work from the Chicago office and put them in roles that were foreign to them. Because they performed really, really well at a certain level or in a certain position, we assume that they would, you know, be able to rise to the occasion to the next level as, you know, a regional manager or sales teacher rather than a salesperson. And I think we just did it all wrong. So how do you get the right people? I mean, particularly for somebody like me, listen, I've got lots of ideas and I've created, you know, several seven figure businesses and, you know, one or two eight-figure businesses. So how does somebody like me engage with somebody who's a very good take-it-to-the-next-level person? I think the key is to find someone who has a track record of leading organizations and building businesses. That's the key skill that you're looking for. And medicine is one of those fields where you've got super bright people, and that's both a, a blessing and a curse. The blessing is you've got super bright people. The curse is they think they know it all. And that makes it challenging. Unfortunately, doctors, on the whole, it's a generalization, but on the whole, doctors make very poor business people. They're super technicians. And one of the skills that they have is they know as soon as they step out of an area of expertise, they're trained to refer to someone else who's the expert. 
And that's very deeply ingrained. Every family, you know, okay, I can't deal with this. You're going off to the radiologist. I can't deal with this. I'm going to send you to the orthopedic guy. That's very deeply ingrained. But the GP is never doing due diligence on the orthopedic surgeon. They're never doing due diligence on the radiologist. They're simply trusting that they are fulfilling their role. And in business, if you do that, that is a recipe for death. So a business leader needs to trust but verify, to use a Ronald Reagan term. Mm -hmm. They really need to drill deep and make sure that things are being done correctly, make sure the right people are in the right roles. There's an awful lot more quality assurance work that goes on. Someone who's in the technician role for most of their career is just not deeply ingrained in their way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So you need people that have those attributes. not so much a question of skills. It's more what are their attributes. If you have those people that know how to do that and it's deeply ingrained in them, then I think you have a shot at being successful. I was thinking about your question, though, and looking at what other ways could you grow. So imagine for a moment, and you see a lot of this going on in the medical industry right now, the traditional specialists being in their own office with you know the receptionist out front and maybe an assistant, that model is dying. And you know the industry is moving to this family health team model. If you see a family medicine group, well, guess what? Down in the basement, there's going to be a radiology lab. There's going to be a blood work lab. These are all complementary businesses, right? right? Mm-hmm. And that's another way to grow right. is to provide some of these other services that are completely complementary. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And in some regards, I was kind of laughing a little bit because you said trust, verify. And I know my uh, chief operating officer listens to this show, and it's something I say to her probably every day. So I know she's cracking up right now. I don't think it's just a doctor problem. I mean, I do think, to your point, you're right, doctors trust and so on and so forth. But in this case, you know, I think it's an entrepreneur problem. I mean, it's a startup guy problem. I mean, we're good at starting because I certainly, my identity is definitely not as a physician. I mean, I have five, six different businesses that have, some of them don't have anything to do with medicine, but I am a startup guy. I think people sometimes, you know, get into these positions where they're really good at something. And then and to your point about physicians, it's right. You're good at something. You know, we assume that everybody's taking the Hippocratic Oath. And so that if you send somebody over to somebody else, they're going to do a good job. They don't. But I think it's a matter of getting different skill sets involved ultimately. So it's a complex topic. Tell me, Victor, in terms of what you do right now, Do you work with people on this stuff? I mean, I know you're a real estate investor, but do you do any consulting or know of where people, if they're interested in getting help with their business, where they should turn? I do have a consulting practice. I try and contain that to a small percentage of what I do. So out of necessity, I have to keep that to a small number of clients. So I'm obviously very selective of who I work with because first and foremost, these days, I'm a real estate developer. And those projects are pretty compelling, and I don't want to sacrifice them for consulting income. But I love to grow businesses. And one of the reasons why I do consult is it gives me the opportunity to see other businesses. You know, I can't run 10 businesses myself, but I'm passionate about growing businesses and love to see other businesses as well. And if I can help in an advisory capacity, to me, that's just so much fun. I just love doing that. Yeah, that's great. So how can we learn more about you? You can visit my website at victorjm.com, and we have an awesome mastermind that we run there, and we meet once a month. I've got an amazing mentor who is, you know, really the wisdom behind it. It's Mr. George Ross. Some of your listeners might remember him. 
as Donald Trump's attorney on the TV show The Apprentice. And the man has uh, a tremendous amount of wisdom. And whatever you may think of Mr. Trump politically or personally, uh, put that aside. This man has been in business for 65 years. He's just turned 89 years old. He has the wisdom of the ages. And I value every minute I get to spend with him because he just yeah. delivers so much value. So what's that mastermind? Is it a business mastermind? Is it a uh, real estate mastermind? Or? It's a bit of both. George obviously has worked for much of his career in real estate before he worked for Donald. He did over 700 deals for Saul Goldman, but he also owned a chain of radio stations. So sure. he's been a business owner himself. Most of the wealth that he created was running businesses. It was not charging an hourly rate as an attorney. Got it. Got it. And so this is a mastermind that you run once a month and, and you yep. join that or how does that work? Yeah, you can sign up for it on the website. There's a, a small application process. There's some audio clips if you want to listen to the types of things we talk about on the calls. It is a conference call format and we record all the calls. So, you know, you have the opportunity to go back and review what we've talked about. You know, if there's a portion of it that you want to go and use for your own internal business purposes, you know, you want to cut out five minutes of the recording and use it for your own purposes, you're certainly free to do that. But the real value is to get someone who really has, I don't know, there's almost no words to describe the, the level and depth of insight that he has. Sure. It's pretty remarkable. It's fantastic. Well, listen, Victor, this has been really fun and I appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Victor Minash. Now, my goal on this show is to broaden your financial horizons. So the more exposure you have to investing in opportunities, different opportunities, the more you will realize that there's a lot more to investing in this world than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. So I want to leave you today, though, with a request. I don't always do this on every show, but I probably should, that if you haven't already done so, you know, use your iTunes or, you know, Stitcher app and actually subscribe to the show. And if you like what I'm doing, make sure you leave me a review on iTunes. Again, I don't ask for that very often and I probably should because the more of that we get, the more exposure we will have because the show will start to climb up in the ranks and the higher and higher quality of show that I will be able to provide you. I think we're already, you know, we have a pretty significantly quality show, but I mean, it always helps to become even more high profile. Finally, make sure you get on my email list one way or another, folks. You're only getting about half of the content that I put out by only listening to the podcast. And I mentioned you can do this by really signing up for anything at wealthformula.com. And also, if you don't get to a computer very often or you listen to the show while you're driving and you're at a stoplight, you can simply text 44222 and type in wealth formula one word don't let the autocorrect screw you up there and that's it for me today this is buck joffrey with wealth formula podcast signing off thank you for listening to the wealth formula podcast visit us on the web at wealthformula.com the information contained in this podcast are opinions not fact as always consult your own financial team before making any investment see you next time Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three 
and a half years. These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.